Hello everyone, Joshua Gibbeland here, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me to discuss Ultraman Oil SOS is Nari Ely in our nation's capital. Nari, how are you doing this evening? Doing great. It's great to be here, Josh. Uh, things are so far so good in DC. It seems like most things are concentrated by the White House and so far I think relatively peaceful. That's nice. This is, granted, it all varies on when we this goes live. Yeah, San Jose just had its first uh, order for curfew in I don't know how long. So yeah, that's a uh, weird and exciting times that we live yeah, in. I've, and I just, I've only lived in DC for about five years, but I have my first curfew. And I think honestly, the first curfew of, of my life. So <laughs> this is, yeah, interesting times. Let's just say that. Yeah, I let's just say that I keep thinking of the footage from the March of the Bonus Army and the impact that had upon politics in 1932 uh, because that that was the I think the nail that ended the Hoover presidency but I digress let's <laughs> talk about Ultraman and you know, we've been going through Ultra Q and Ultraman alternating of we'll, we'll get into Ultra 7 what are your feelings towards Ultraman as we dip into another of his adventures? So I have a very special place in my heart for the original Ultraman series. It is so endearing and so earnest. <laughs> um, you know, it's I think one of the same reasons why I was so enamored with the first um, uh, of the uh, Gamera movies is, is also just how charming <laughs> these characters are. Um, and I, yeah, I, I feel similarly about the original special science team. <laughs> They're all so endearing and so wonderful. It's, I don't want to wear a helmet or one of those orange outfits, but their class A's could work for me. <laughs> I could do the blue blazer, no problem. Totally, totally down with that. I agree is, charm is a good word for it. Endearing fun, it's noble, and you know, like this started at the same time as the original Star Trek, so you know there was something in the air, mm -hmm. just, uh, highly likable characters in sci-fi in the late 60s that truly do help give us what we have today. And, and a steady stream of very creative kaiju. <laughs> They, they were on their A game with this. My God, for a weekly show. Wait, wait, Josh, we like, could have oh. gone for a, we could have gone for a pun here. They were on fire with this one. <laughs> yes, they were. It was, it was Betty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll get into the, the, the kaiju design with this, but this is one of the most unique kaiju. Oh, yeah. You know, definitely two people and part puppet. And just the mindset of, all right, we're going to make it like a starfish and two guys are going to have to be in it. And its head is a bat type shape that goes in the middle. Who's with me? <laughs> and they thought this through with also, and the starfish will essentially be bags full of oil. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... Bravo, guys. I, I just blown away with the creativity <laughs> that they had with the guy. Uh, and uh, I, did, I did some Google searches and eBay searches to see what kind of figures existed. And there weren't many. And the ones that do exist are super expensive. So, Ooh. yeah, uh, you can get them on shirts. So, like, that exists. Uh, but I was really blown away with like, wow, this rare. And yeah, how many, there aren't a lot of kaiju that are two people. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so some of the best kaiju have been two person suits, but yes. <laughs> agreed. And the way they, well, we'll see this with some of the others, but they have some that basically look like, you know, the two guys in a horse outfit. 
So that yeah. way, that way the creature is not on its knees while they walk. Yeah. So uh, that's nice. But yeah, it's like, okay, that's like a horse outfit or a zebra outfit. You know, like <laughs> two dudes. Well, the premise with this one is, you know, this kaiju named Pestar uh, attacked oil refinery starting in Iran and sank oil takers and makes its way across to Sea of Japan. We mm -hmm. once again have a drunk guy who's the initial witness. Uh, the drunk guy is accosted by a gasoline truck and the drunk does try warning the driver that, hey, there are these blue lights, I saw a monster. And the driver responds the way somebody would to the highly intoxicated individual by dismissing him, drives away. The truck is then destroyed by the creature. The witness then calls the police and the they instantly discredit him going like, this guy is super hammered. Not like a little, <laughs> but it's our hair, the sun's up and he's still drunk. That's significant of how much this dude had. And this falls into the jaws, just the situation of the drunk guy lives. And uh, <laughs> that also happened much in horror films. Normally the drunk guy gets killed. Uh, and we have the science patrol out there to determine what happened. And they also deduce that this kaiju feeds upon oil and thus is full of oil. So they have to be careful when they kill it because they don't want it to blow up yeah. on shore and basically be like a giant fuel air explosive or, or like a large amount of napalm going off in a populated area, all of which would be bad. <laughs> you heard it from the legal geeks. Napalm in a highly populated area would not be good. <laughs> bad. Fire bad. So, oh boy. Uh, we've talked about this before, but public drunkenness when we've discussed Ultra Q. Uh, do you, I, I talked about it last time, Nari. Would you like to do a quick highlight of public drunkenness? Uh, yes, for, and for actually this? I can add just a tiny bit so we can, as you, as you often say, Josh, build on top of rather than repeat material. Um, but so in essence, um, public drunkenness, at least under California code, and this is pretty par for the course, uh, I believe in most jurisdictions, um, is, is any person who is found in a public place under the influence of intoxicating liquor, any drug controlled substance, we looked this up last time, toluene, which is a, yeah, something happened there, um, or any combination of such. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm adding to our discussion of this by noting, so this is California Penal Code section 647, subsection F, subsection A, um, or sorry, the root uh, of this, before you get to any of the subsections, indicates that this is disorderly conduct, <laughs> um, punishable by a misdemeanor. So just in case anyone was curious what the difference is, there isn't really a difference, at least in California, Public uh, intoxication, public drunkenness is a form of disorderly uh, conduct. Most of these subsections, by the way, in the California Code, dedicated towards prostitution. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Again, things must have happened. <laughs> so we don't need to go that deep into the... To the no, 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 no. Just, just adding some new information, that's all. <laughs> Sorry. I, God knows what that legislative hearing was like. The witnesses that were <laughs> yeah. In any event, um, but yes, this is the uh, second time in the last couple weeks that we've had an incidence of what is undoubtedly public drunkenness. I don't know how many, I mean, granted, we're not taking the episodes in order. So maybe it's just like the, the random draw that we're doing, but it's <laughs> weird that we keep bumping into these it's like huh again <laughs> so boy howdy but one of, one of the story parts is oil tankers are getting destroyed and like those have crews of people 
and they can vary, but let's just say 30 people, and we don't get a count of how many oil tankers get taken out, but we mm -hmm. see one off the coast, and we're not sure how close it is to shore. If it's within three miles, or if it's in excess of three miles, because that's important for what laws can apply if this was, say, in, in the United States. And Japan probably has some equivalent legislation. But when you start dealing with the death of merchant mariners, like we're seafaring nations, both the United States and Japan. And like they're an island. They import lots because they're an island. They also export lots because they're an island. We, we're a big, we're big, big country, but we import, and a lot goes through, say, like the Port of Oakland or the Port, port of Long Beach, and like that's, that's how commerce happens. And oil is important because that's what makes machines go. And if you don't produce oil in your country, you have to import it all. So this is important for the Japanese people at this point in time because they, they need fuel. So we see an oil tanker blow up and uh, the, the kaiju surface and attack it and sink it because it's going to go feed on the oil. Well, you don't see anyone get off the ship. So that means at least a dozen to 30 merchantmen have died. So if we're going to talk about, say, the Jones Act, prior to the adoption of the Merchant Marine Act, also known as the Jones Act, the general maritime law of the United States did not authorize any recovery of damages or indemnity for the death of a seaman. And on the very next page, it is, is this expression. It is the, the plain, it is plain that the Merchant Marine Act is one of the general applications intended to bring about the uniformity and the exercise of admiralty jurisdiction required by the Constitution. We then get to the Jones Act which states that uh, disability or death, uh, injuries occurring upon navigable waters of the United States, except as otherwise provided in the section, compensation shall be payable under this chapter in respect of disability or death of an employee, but only if the disability or the death results in an injury occurring upon the navigable waters of the United States, which could be a wharf, a pier, a dock, terminal, Marine, whale, marine Railway, basically where commerce is happening. Now, you also have the Death on the High Seas Act. Uh, excuse me, let's talk Which, about wow, some Wow, what a name for a statute, I just have to say. <laughs> yes. uh, be before we leave the Jones Act, uh, we have uh, Section 904. Every employer shall be liable for and shall secure the payment to his employees of the compensation payable under other subsections. Uh, in the case of an employer who is a subcontractor, only if the subcontractor fails to secure the payment of compensation shall the contractor be liable and, and be required to secure the payment of compensation. The subcontractor shall not be deemed to have failed to secure the payment of compensation of the contractor has provided insurance for such compensation for the benefit of the subcontractor. Always to make sure that people who get hurt or if they're killed, their families get money. Yeah. Now, if you are more than three miles out, that's where the death on the High Seas Act kicks in because so it matters where an oil tanker would blow up. If it was two miles off the shore, we're dealing with Jones Act. If it's mm -hmm. more than three miles out, we're now on death on the High Seas Act. So when the death, death of an individual is caused by a wrongful act, uh, neglect, or default occurring on the high seas and beyond three nautical miles from the shore of the United States, the personal representative of the decedent may bring a civil action in admiralty against the person or vessel responsible. The action shall be for the exclusive benefit of the decedent's spouse, parent, child, or dependent relative. So, them, somebody's suing because the ship sank because of a kaiju attack, that, 
getting recovery under the Death on the High Seas Act might be problematic. This is probably going to be an issue of insurance. Uh-huh. And, and life insurance getting paid out because it doesn't look like anyone was wronged. That yeah, I didn't see any, in the one tanker that we see blow up, I, I didn't see them doing anything negligent like, as we're going to get to later, running aground or <laughs> things yeah. like that. Yeah. They, they just had a bad day of, oh my God, what is that? <laughs> oh, and yeah. before, bef before we move off of this topic, I just wanted to go back to one thing that you mentioned, the Jones Act, um, or, or sorry, the, the case discussing it, about admiralty jurisdiction. Josh, would you like to tell us just a little bit, because that is like, I think to anyone who isn't a lawyer and who didn't have to take, you know, uh, civil procedure in the first year of law school, you might have no clue what that means. So could you tell me what admiralty jurisdiction is? Yes, I'll put on my sailor outfit and get ready for this <laughs> one. There are some areas of law that are exclusive to federal court. Those include admiralty and immigration. Mm -hmm. And they're the third, but I'm blanking on it if there is. But those are the big ones when you talk yeah. about- Oh, I think also involving foreign diplomats, I think. Yeah, which would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> we um, don't want that state court, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, basically, you know, the, the general rule of thumb is that state courts are courts of plenary jurisdiction. They can hear everything under the sun. They can hear things that arise under state law. They can also hear challenges under federal law or federal constitution, um, anything. They can do everything. Federal courts, on the other hand, are limited. They have limited subject matter jurisdiction. Um, one of the things that gets you into federal court is when you've got parties from multiple different states. So that's where you could hear a state claim potentially is if you've got a ton of different uh, parties from different places. But ordinarily, you need some kind of hook like this, which is that, um, well, and I guess that's the other thing that's so special about it is that it's, the, it's, it's exclusively federal court. So the state courts cannot hear a case involving admiralty law. Yeah, that gets kicked. So it's yeah. like getting into federal courts hard unless you have a federal question. Mm -hmm. That's exclusively federal. So if you were, again, these are exclusively federal. So like when uh, was Arizona tried doing, uh, pulling people over and demanding to see ID to determine their immigration status, that was struck down by the courts because the, the state crossed into exclusive federal jurisdiction. Yep. That was not something for local law enforcement to get involved with. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't hear of admiralty courts, you know, like that, like those issues come to state court that often because one would be weird and because it's exclusively <laughs> it just doesn't happen. It's exclusively federal. I also just wanted to note one quick thing. So I have been doing, I have been looking at some pro se filings uh, in federal courts as part of my current work. Um, and there, there, you know, I, I don't know if people have heard of the sovereign citizens and things like that. There, I get their petitions once in a while. There's one funny thing about this, which I just thought is kind of interesting and funny to note. Um, I know one of, one of the common sovereign citizen beliefs is that the, you know, the, the sort of low fence or you know low wall that's in most courtrooms that separates the observers from the proceedings um, is a lot, some sovereign citizens believe that that's like actually supposed to be a part of a ship because it does kind of look a little maritimey. <laughs> Um, and this mention of admiralty being in the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal courts is is the source of this belief that federal courts are rooted somehow in this kind of naval law, <laughs> which it is, it is a part of what they do, but I have to say, especially over the last century, it's been a diminishing part of what they do as a proportion of everything else. Yeah, we have other things that get litigated and <laughs> not saying that it's not important. Right. Yeah, just, uh, it's just an interesting little thing. Again, people who don't know what that means might think it's really, really interesting. 
It is, it is. Or the uh, administrative law judges who are on Coast Guard Island that are dealing with you know, like that aspect mm -hmm. of, of admiralty law. So yeah, there is some really unique issues associated with it. If you're into boats and ships and all of that good stuff that, that I do in my free time, yes, it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, but for, for our purposes with this, this story, it's worth noting. And we would need to know how far out that ship was to know if that was the continental United States, what would apply. And I'm not sure mm -hmm. what Japan has, if they, if they make, if they have a, it'd be weird if they didn't. Mm -hmm. Because they have, they have commerce going in and out of Japan via ship. So they're, they're, we know they have laws. So it'd be yes. interesting to get to what are those laws and how are they similar and how are they dissimilar. Uh, but we now get into the, the sea hunt of this creature that's underwater, surfaces to feed upon gasoline. And you know, this was like nine, eight, nine years before Jaws came out. So they decided to use oil drums full of gasoline and they're yellow. And they have two helicopters go out and just drop a whole bunch of gasoline drums into the water as bait. So they're <laughs> in the water with gasoline. And I mean, that in and of itself would reek of a pollution issue. Cause like, you just don't go do, we wouldn't do that. Like, even if we were trying to figure out how do we hunt this giant monster that's sinking ships, that probably would not be plan A on our part to go, we're just gonna go drop 55 gallon uh, drums of gasoline into San Francisco Bay and see if we get this thing to surface or not. But they do here. And they, they have a strategic plan of, we don't wanna fire on the creature if it goes into the bay, because we don't want to ignite the bay on fire. So everything that we do has to be outside of the bay. Mm -hmm. you know, keep in mind that it is water and stuff floats, but <laughs> their initial plan of like, don't, if it's in the bay, don't shoot it, is a good instinct, just because they don't <laughs> yeah. want Well, they miss, and there is, there's a, uh, we can get into some really deep uh, analysis on who was, was this an accident or was there negligence in this misfire? Because somebody falls and the levers hit and the missiles fired at the oil monster now full of gasoline and there's a giant fire on this bay. And then the flaming creature walks ashore and starts setting stuff on fire. Now, yeah. just from a, a practical aspect, those guys in the suit, that had to be hot. Like they're, the practical effects of fires going in all the miniatures and they have the two guys in the kaiju outfit in the middle of it. I mean, that's just. I think there was a serious risk of heat stroke if precautions were not taken. <laughs> Hopefully it's, they had insulation. I mean, anyway, let's just say <laughs> I was concerned for their welfare in the show that's over 50 years old. <laughs> but I hope those guys are okay. But let's get into some of the issues with like pollution laws because we don't like oil spills. We yeah. really don't like oil spills. And you know, the, the quickest way to get through all the analysis is in the United States, if you have an oil spill, a company spills oil, there's a $25,000 per day fine or up to three times the cost incurred by the Oil Spill Liability Trust Fund as a result of such failure. So playing for keeps here. Now, 
and that's post BP oil spill, deep deep water horizon, which was bad. Uh, there was another one that you that we looked at, and, and Nari, do you want to talk about the Exxon Valdez, which I remember from my childhood, which predates you, and in no way makes me feel old. <laughs> This only predates me by like a year, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, the civil penalties or criminal penalties for these kinds of spills have definitely evolved over the years. But one other thing that's really evolved, which I think is kind of interesting and fun to talk about um, in the context of oil spills, is civil liability for this kind of stuff. So um, civil liability had been pretty, pretty limited um, for a long time uh, leading up to the Exxon Valdez. <laughs> so Congress had already been working for several years before then, I think maybe maybe a decade before then, because there had been a couple other oil spills in the preceding decades, um, to try to you know write new laws about this. But it hadn't been done yet for the Exxon Valdez. Yeah. So, um, but in any event, there's a interesting, so in the year after the Exxon Valdez in 1990, something called the Oil Pollution Act was passed, um, which substantially modified what I'm about to talk about, which is um, economic loss in the context and, and compensation for economic loss in a civil lawsuit when there's an oil spill. So to contrast, um, there is a 1981 case called uh, Pruitt versus Allied Chemical Corporation. Um, it's a district court case in 1981 in Richmond, Virginia. And um, I this case is something that is still being taught as a really interesting case in remedies classes um, because it really talks about, uh, you know, proximate cause, directness uh, of that, directness versus indirectness of that relationship, and the manner in which traditionally courts, if you're just in common law, you're not you're not getting your, trying to get your compensation through some kind of statute like the Oil Pollution Act, um, uh, really frowns upon uh, economic loss generally, especially future economic loss, right? So if you could prove that your boat got damaged or your, you know, property had a bunch of oil slick put on it or something, so you could prove actual damages, um, even if they're quote unquote economic, you know, that that would still make sense. The, the issue is that, you know, you have people who very legitimately are going to suffer future economic losses because, for example, with the Deepwater Horizon, you had a substantial decrease in consumption of seafood and and going to seafood restaurants on the Gulf and things like that from the, um, you know, only semi-correct fear <laughs> that there might be some kind of uh, pollutive effects in the seafood itself. And I believe, I mean, I could be wrong about this. I think there, there, there would be some legitimate fear about that immediately afterwards, but it was unscientifically grounded fears afterwards. But nonetheless, it was causing substantial losses for a long period of time. But so in 1981, before this federal uh, court and before the Oil Pollution Act was passed, um, you had a situation where very much like with the Deepwater Horizon incident, um, a groups of people who own seafood businesses were attempting to recover after an oil spill for their economic losses. Um, in this case, because this was before the statute was passed, they were relying on usual common law, um, uh, which as I just hinted at or mentioned is, is not favorable <laughs> to these situations. Um, and you had uh, the court essentially come to uh, this rather, <laughs> rather remarkable conclusion. Um, do, 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 sorry, I'm just... We can cut this, I'm trying to remember, here it is, okay. The court thus finds itself with a perceived need to limit liability without any articulable reason for excluding any particular set of plaintiffs. Nonetheless, the court concludes that plaintiffs who purchased and marketed seafood from commercial fishermen suffered damages that are not legally cognizable because they are insufficiently direct. So basically admitting that, you know, based on the underlying principles of proximate cause and uh, uh, the, the disfavoring of economic loss, the judge had to draw the line and he acknowledged that it was arbitrary. And preceding this, there's some lengthy discussion of his disapproval of a lot of this law that he's bound by. But in any event, if you recall, and I, you know, I don't know if people remember, but there were substantial lawsuits um, filed against BP after the Deepwater Horizon, including by purveyors of seafood, exactly the same case, basically, that this judge in 1981 found that he was bound to throw out. 
Um, and in the BP Horizon case, though, they instead were relying on uh, the Oil Pollution Act, which expands liability, and I have it here. Uh, first, uh, makes each responsible party for a facility from which oil is discharged or which poses a substantial threat of a discharge of oil into or upon the navigable waters or adjoining shorelines is liable for the removal costs and damages specified in another subsection, which I'll get to, that result from such incident relevant to, the, to this case when we're talking about economic damages from seafood merchants, <laughs> so not terribly direct. There's a specific subsection for them of the OPA, which is damages equal to the loss of profits or impairment of earning capacity due to the injury, destruction, or loss of personal property per up. Uh, uh, real property or natural resources are recoverable by any claimant. So, I mean, there's still a, a, a hook in there of causality, which is the due to, but you don't have to prove it was the, the, the but-for cause. You, you just have to prove that it was a cause. And that's insane because that's a lot of liability. Yeah. So, and this is exactly perhaps one of the reasons why, um, you know, BP uh, following this predicted, predicted their civil liability to be about, if I, if I can find the exact numbers on this, they predicted it to be about 8 billion. They ended up at about 10 billion and it actually kept going up from there. That was their early predictions of it. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. They earned it. Uh, they really earned it, but like causation has to end someplace. Yes. You know, because you, it, it, it can get too extreme on what do you do and how do you handle this from a policy perspective. Now, with our fictional case, we have you know, the kaiju go ashore and just starts lighting everything on fire in this oil refinery. And we have this issue of, is the science patrol responsible because they missed a shot? And <laughs> did that cause one, the fire and thus two, the, the kaiju to go ashore and just unleash holy hell on this oil refinery? And they, they do, you know, as they're doing crisis management, one of them asks the refinery chief, why can't you just like, let's move the oil from like one of these uh, facilities to another. And it's like, well, it takes 30 hours to do that. Mm -hmm. And like, we have, we have minutes, so not, not good. Uh, and so like, that was nice. They actually, that number sounds like it could be real. I don't know if it is, but it at least sounds, <laughs> it's going to take 30 hours to move that much oil. I'd buy that, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, Maybe it wasn't particularly full that day. Yeah, it's well good because it was burning. Um, <laughs> so again, big oil fire. And so we do have the, you know, like somebody in charge from the company who's very upset about what this is going to do to their company because it's, you know, they're looking at billions of dollars of damage as well because this kaiju is burning everything to the ground. Do you... Like when I think of, you know, is the science patrol responsible? The answer could be, yeah, because missing the shot. But that doesn't mean that they're responsible for the kaiju going ashore. Right. You know, so it's one thing to go, they're, they're responsible for the oil fire. Be, you know, granted, you have a sovereign immunity issue to get through and generally you don't uh, go after the military for property damage because like this was incurred in fighting this the giant monster that was going to kill us all cut us some slack <laughs> so there's that that maybe the government's gonna i mean the government's gonna have to pay for the cleanup anyway so like they're it's just the way it's going to be they're gonna have to somebody's gonna have to pay and insurance would go bankrupt so <laughs> but when it, it goes ashore, I would think that's a superseding factor because mm -hmm. you're dealing with a living thing. It's not like a domino falling. It's, you know, the creature could have gone out to sea. Instead, yeah. it decided to go raise hell. 
what are your thoughts on it? You know, I think that, you know, if, if assuming we're, we're past the sovereign immunity issue, as you just mentioned, um, I agree that ordinarily we consider it to break the chain of causation where in order for this thing to happen, another actor had to have done something. Um, if you view the kaiju as that actor who had to have done something in order for this to happen, ordinarily that does break the chain of causality. I note, however, this might have been pretty darn foreseeable because there is an oil refinery in the bay. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's not a slam dunk dismissal for them, but... <laughs> yeah, it was attracted to the area for a reason. Yes, exactly. And like that's its food source, you know. Like they had a buffet table out for them. So right, and by putting those oil barrels out there and then lighting them on fire, didn't they basically just like dangle a carrot in front of him? <laughs> yeah, you could say this was their plan gone wrong. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you could look at other government plans gone wrong, and you know, it, it's the government has to do a bailout of like, oops, you do. Uh, so, and this, so this is actually, though, I won't get, digress too much on this, um, because I think we've covered sovereign immunity in a different episode, uh, but this is why sovereign immunity is a thing. <laughs> um, uh, in order for, you know, ordinarily, you cannot sue the government, that includes state and federal, um, or any of their, their agencies or instrumentalities, um, uh, except where they expressly waive that, and they have in a lot of instances. So for federal, you've got you know Tucker Act, uh, the Contracts Disputes Act, um, and you've got a bunch of civil rights stuff where the federal government has waived it for the for themselves, and I think also maybe for the states because they're empowered to do that for Fourteenth uh, Amendment stuff. Um, so they have done that in a lot of instances. But I also want to emphasize, and this is something that links a little bit to what I was uh, discussing with the change in liability with the oil spill. Um, you know, it might seem on its face at first, like, oh gosh, this seems super unfair. How could you close the doors to the courthouse for people who, you know, undoubtedly do have an injury? And let's say in this case, that the special science team has sovereign immunity and um, they can't be sued. Um, you know, people who have a view of the courts as being relatively limited like that would, would point to instead legislatures as being the appropriate place for this compensation, which is uh, typically known as public law rather than private law. So private law is, uh, I think as Scalia once put it, so much from A to B. It's extremely limited. You've only got two parties. You're not dealing with large classes of people. In fact, class actions are a big exception to the usual rule that uh, courts deal with so much from A to B. Um, and so when you've got something like this, or you've got masses of people who have been injured by something that the government has done, uh, this is maybe precisely the place where you need Congress to pass a law, and they have in some instances, like uh, after 9-11, there was a compensation fund that Congress set up and things like that. Um, you do get into some problems, though, where because it's, you know, your, your legislature is democratic, it's therefore influenced by what is popular, you know, groups of people who are more popular or events that capture more popular attention are more likely to be heavily compensated than others. Um, and so I would contrast the 9-11 fund with how much compensation was given to victims of Katrina, for example. Um, one captured the public uh, 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 attention much more, also involved much uh, bigger cross-section in terms of class and race and things like that. It, it, anyway, I, don't, I won't go too into that, but that is, uh, in this circumstance, you might want to petition Congress. <laughs> yeah, I would. And the damage seems to be limited to the oil refinery. So it's not like it took out a neighborhood or, you know, it got into the residential area of the city. It was limited to the industrial part of the port, which is where the oil refinery was, which for a government bailout for recovery, that could work. And yeah, and I think this is actually relatively topical given that we have a natural, kind of natural disaster and there are substantial government bailouts. Yeah, this wouldn't be, they need a PPE loan. This would be, we're just gonna cut a check. <laughs> and yeah, we need you to work. Uh, you need to work. We're just going to do this. Yeah. And, uh, 
We're going to draft up the papers right now, and we're going to fix this bad boy today. So yeah, I get that. Uh, other things that struck me was, uh, you know, the Science Patrol seems to have a, a wide job description because they go from <laughs> fighting the kaiju to deciding to fire. And they're in there, those orange jumpsuits don't look like they're firefighting material. So, no. So we see firefighters in proper firefighting attire, including the what you're going to fight an oil fire in, you know, like the, the giant silver suit, you know, that, that looks kind of like the Michelin man, you know, and th those guys are running around. And then you get the guys in probably the flammable orange outfit running around without masks and respirators. And it's like, you know, I trust them to fight Kaiju. This doesn't seem like a good idea to have them play firefighter. Yeah. And I think was it Ide? Ide yeah. almost succumbs and is pulled out at the last minute. <laughs> I'll go man the fire hose by myself. So so he feels guilty over the missile shot that started the oil fire. And that's normal. I mean, I'm glad you feel bad, but that doesn't mean you go rogue and decide, I will fight the fire myself, because fire doesn't play like that. Fire is yeah. fire. <laughs> Just because you are responsible for a fire does not mean you have power over it. <laughs> You're not in this weird social contract with the yeah. fire. Yep, nope. Let the guy in the s silver outfit do the heavy lifting on this one. You yes. stand back. Because we gotta go rescue him. We gotta go find gotta go find our boy who feels bad so he doesn't die. So we're all gonna go and be in danger to do that. So yay. Uh, this is also one of the times we see Ultraman break out a, a new power. Uh, apparently he can do firefighting with <laughs> fingers to put out said fire. And that was handy. I, I don't know <laughs> if we'll ever see that again, but it was great to see with like, that is a big, big oil fire they have to put out. So, yeah. Sometimes every kid wants to play fireman. And definitely that this episode has that wish fulfillment. So it's good stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a tight little episode of, it's centered around a specific area with a very specific problem. And the majority of the problem that they have is a fire. Mm -hmm. And when the Kaiju tries getting back up after we think it's dead, Ultraman uses the, uh, was a Spectra beam on it and kills it dead. I'm like, he uses the finishing move first and it's over. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, the majority of the problem was the fire. Uh, did you have other thoughts on this episode? Yeah, so I thought, and this is kind of a, a, an ongoing pattern, I think, in a lot of the kaiju stuff we've been watching. It, there seemed to me to be a uh, relatively subtle underlying environmental message. So mostly I'm, I'm hanging a lot of weight here on a line, um, I can't remember exactly who said it, but basically saying that, you know, in this age of oil, con of, of mass oil consumption, it seems only natural that there would arise a monster who consumes oil. <laughs> um, and I, I find that metaphor to be relatively apt. Yeah, the fact that this is 50 plus years old uh, is also fascinating because we still talk about these issues 50 years later. Yeah, and it's, 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 a, it's potentially a metaphor for the kinds of issues that we're having now, which you could characterize it as. It is a mythical beast that is feeding on the oil we're consuming. <laughs> yeah, and this is still old Japan. From what I understand, and I haven't studied this, but there, you know, with Japan's rapid growth in this time period, that they had pollution problems. So mm -hmm. in, was it 1970 or 71, where 
Godzilla vs. Hedora comes out, I mean, that is an allegory for the pollution that Japan was facing and also the pollution that was happening worldwide, because that's when we in the United States start getting into this as well, uh, because people used to just throw Coke cans out the window of their car while driving, you know, just, yeah. The, the, the fact that Nari's eyes just got really big, horrible things happened in the 70s <laughs> before. Yeah, I cannot imagine. Oh my goodness. People did that. And like today, that sort of thing would be like, what's wrong with you? Yes. Uh, it's like, what? No, you're horrible. That that happened, and we used to pollution used to be worse. And yeah, so, so I, I think I'm relatively lucky. I, I I don't believe there's I've ever lived somewhere where there's been a serious smog problem. Like I would joke about uh, smog in Phoenix, but it was never there was never a serious noticeable haze. Um, it was yeah. So I feel relatively lucky in that respect. Yeah, I. Part of my childhood was in Altadena in the early 80s, so I've seen smog, and, uh, but that's also part of the topography of the area with, with kind of like the lack of winds and... Yeah, yeah, when you're ringed in by mountains. So like Phoenix was very conscious of this because it was particularly vulnerable to that because it's ringed by mountains as well. But, um, but yeah, I actually, I've also, I have visited, for example, a place where this is still a problem. I have visited Beijing. Um, and the, the air pollution there is so bad that on a normal day, if you're standing on one side of the main courtyard of the Forbidden City, which is relatively large, but we're not talking huge here, <laughs> um, the haze will be so bad, you won't be able to see clearly to the other side. Yeah, you know, the, when Beijing looks like Venus, you know, that's, yeah. that's bad. But or I mean, when we, I could be, when oh, go ahead. Uh, the firestorm in, in uh, Petaluma, Santa Rosa, uh, what was that, summer of eight, 2018, I think it looked like in the Bay Area. It was terrifying. And yeah, so it can really, really be a horrible, horrible thing. So this was real uh, for, and again, sci-fi picks these topics. Pollution is one of those topics that we do like to address, and they do a good job with this. Uh, any other issues that you care to opine upon? Sorry, was there something else, Josh? I can't. No, no, no. I no. This is this is kind of the free for all. Uh, there actually was. Okay, I got one. Sorry. So when you edit it, this will be where we recut. So there is actually one thing, and it's just going kind of a going back to our discussion of admiralty and maritime law. I just wanted to discuss this because I don't think I've had an opportunity to. It is a commonly held wrong belief that there is no law on the high on the international waters. <laughs> um, and uh, Josh, you're welcome to correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the general rule is that within about 12 miles, right, of the coast, the general international law here is that if you're within 12 miles of any country's coastline, that country's law will apply. Once you're past that, it's still not pirate law. <laughs> um, but I believe instead the law of whoever, of whatever country or na national owns the vessel is the law that applies. So once you get past 12 miles, you can't have free murder. <laughs> It's not hedonism, you know, we're <laughs> finally get to kill that man and take his property. Yeah, no, no, it's not how that works. The international sovereignty lines used to be defined by what was the range on cannons. Mm. Uh, so. Oh, that's so antiquated. <laughs> was. So back in college, I took a a like law of the high seas type class and which uh or maritime security class which got into some law it also got into somali pirates it was really fascinating and so the, i'm blanking on the exact coastal line 
but you also have the economic exclusion zones that go out mm. 230 miles from the coasts of your respective country as well, which is why things are kind of a problem with the South China Sea, with China claiming all of the little islands as part of their sovereign territory. So therefore their economic exclusion zone would include Australia, which the Australians are not okay with, nor basically everyone oh, else. Oh yeah. Did, did you already did you already say the distance on the EEZ, the economic exclusion zone? 200 miles. 200, 200 miles. Oh Jesus, that's so huge. <laughs> so this would be why they would also be interested in creating a tiny little island in the middle of nowhere where they build nothing. Yeah, because it's like this is our land and our ocean now. And so like that gets into fishing rights and that's that's an entirely different subject. It can be a semester long course or quarter, depending on what system you want to do. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot there to to get into of like how how the oceans work, legally speaking. And this one, it's close to Japan. So we're able to go like, it's going to be their law. If it was off Long Beach, you know, it would be our law. If mm -hmm. it got within like a mile of the coast, California law is going to kick in as well. So we're going to have, you know, different uh, rules at play, depending on where a vessel is in the water when something happens. Yes. So... Ah, but wonderfully complex issues and again just this wonderfully adorable show that I do love analyzing. Absolutely and I'm looking forward to future episodes as well as there's so many Ultraman shows so I think we're going to get into Ultra 7 soon and other things like that and I'm very much looking forward to it. Exactly and yeah so they, 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 like Star Trek, they kept making things over 50 years, so there's no shortage. And eventually the anime, which again is a very sweet and very anime. So with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave a review on whatever podcast application you're using. Uh, we also have the Patreon, which has some additional content. Uh, until then, everyone, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you all hopefully very, very soon.